I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. I am joined today by Pablo Del Rio. Pablo is a mindfulness teacher and owner of The Way Mindfulness Education. Pablo, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Eric. Thank you. I want to start a little bit by sharing just some of our own shared history. You and I were introduced at a networking event a couple years ago, and I had the good fortune to win a raffle in which I was awarded the prize of being able to attend a mindfulness retreat right here in Delray that you facilitated. And I really, well, first of all, I never win raffles ever. I never win any of that stuff. So that in itself was compelling. But my experience at the retreat was really awesome. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I remember feeling very calm and relaxed in the meditation. And it definitely was the beginning of my desire to become more of a meditator, more of a mindful person. And I have since pursued uh, some of that. So I want to thank you for that. You and I have worked together I have utilized you as a mindfulness coach and you've taught me meditation. And so I really am grateful that you were able to come here and share a little bit of some of the insights that you've shared with me and maybe talk a bit more about yourself and how you have gotten to where you are and what mindfulness is and all these kinds of things that I think people will really appreciate. Sure. Well, you've given a good little platform there for me to start, so thank you for that. I believe the retreat that you attended, we called it Healing the Healer. It was a day of mindfulness, and we were at the Delray Beach Historical Society. And we did a variety of activities. We did some mindfulness of walking outside. We did some mindfulness of eating. We did some stillness, otherwise known as meditation. So yeah, that was a day long retreat, and I and uh, I remember that that day. And having you there was great. Um, you know, mindfulness, a little like yoga, does not always attract a lot of men. So uh, having uh, you there that day was great. Um, so I yeah, where would you like me to start? Because you gave me a kind of a wide avenue there, and I can start with my own experience in mindfulness or. Um, kind of the, the benefit. 
I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how you got involved in it. Yeah. So it was a Saturday morning in 2005. And I had a regular, you know, kind of corporate job. And uh, in theory, Saturday morning was free time, freedom. <clears throat> I was the first one up in my home. Uh, my wife and I had, you know, youngish children at the time. And I didn't have anything to do uh, except my thoughts and emotions were controlling my mind in that moment of freedom. And that didn't feel good. It didn't feel right. So that was in 2005. But to, to do a little flashback, <clears throat> mental illness runs in my family. And I had experience with depression as a young adult, 20 years old. It touched me. And at that age, I was in college and, you know, I was able to kind of bounce back uh, after that experience of depression over the summer in between junior and senior year of college. Um, and then I had ex experienced depression once more in my uh, late 20s. So here I was in 2005, <clears throat> starting to feel like I didn't have adequate control over my thoughts and emotions in a moment of, uh, of freedom. So that day, that Saturday, uh, we ended up going, my wife and I, with our daughter to the library without any plan to look for anything except maybe just wander a little bit. And, uh, and I remember I came across a book that day uh, that I wasn't seeking, but it, it spoke to me. I saw the, the title on the spine. It said, The End of Sorrow. And so I took a look at that book, and it ended up being a uh, uh, a volume in a trilogy of uh, it was a commentary and, and a translation of the Bhagavad Gita, which I hadn't seen before. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with that work. But it turns out that that's a meditation manual. And as I started following the directions of that manual, I I gained more control, more um, ability to regulate the thoughts and emotions that had been controlling me. So that was my uh, starting point with mindfulness meditation was um, a personal need, really, and personal success. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about that experience because reading between the lines, I imagine there was a great deal of suffering that was part of that experience. And that so much of our own suffering, my own experience with uh, depression, anxiety, is generated internally. It's really like a product of our own mind. And there was something that you taught me. I have become fond of repeating it to other people. Well, this is a chance when uh, the, the student repeats back to the teacher to see if I'm getting it correct. That the human brain, because it is an organ, it functions autonomically, right? Like it functions outside of consciousness. So whether we're aware or not, we're always thinking thoughts between 6,000 and 60,000 a day. Most of those thoughts are repetitive, I don't have 60,000 thoughts worth of new material, so I'm going to be borrowing from old stuff. And if there's a lot of negative narrative 
then that's what I'm repeating. And if I repeat those things often enough, they simply become the truth. And so the idea of mindfulness, as I learned it from you, is really supervised attention, which is the ability to monitor one's own thoughts. And the idea of that coming from you was really a new idea to me. I, I, I guess I'd heard it expressed in similar ways, but never with your language. So all of these different things, like you really had my attention with your awareness of it. And I imagine coming out of your own experience, the idea that one can supervise his own thoughts and in a sense make them less painful must have been an extraordinary awareness. Yes, yes it is. And that's a, that's a great recall that we do have those thousands of thoughts every day. And most of them are repetitive and most of them are negative. We call it negativity bias. That's the sum of that little pop quiz that I like to give. And uh, so that can be our experience, just swimming in that negativity bias of consciousness. And if we look at the news, you know, that's a kind of a, a social version of the negativity bias, right? 80% negative, and it's the same story every day, just repeating, you know, the, the patterns of, of a few updated details. But we get to choose whether we want to look at that uh, news report or we get to choose the thoughts that we're having. Uh, or if we're not choosing them, we at least get to super the, supervise them, as you say. So, yeah, I work with students. I work with uh, high school students. I work with adults. So I've had to find language to make mindfulness relatable, accessible, understandable. And mindfulness is the supervision of attention. It's really that simple. Is that your definition? That's my definition. Brilliant. <laughs> it works. And it's a combination of other definitions that are out there over the years. Uh, but it's, it's true, and it works, and it, it encompasses really the, the more technical aspects without saying them. So the technical aspects of the definition of mindfulness, the gen, to generate the energy of mindfulness, too, Aspects have to be present and two have to be absent. So the, the two that are present are uh, effort. It takes just a little bit of effort to generate the energy of mindfulness. And the other is alertness. have to be alert. I can have you know a lot of effort in my uh, awareness while I'm driving on the highway. But effort is not going to alert me to my exit. And I can go right past my exit. So effort and alertness are the two positive elements that are present when mindfulness is active. The two negative that are absent are fear and attachment, otherwise known as craving, or yeah, fear and, and craving, or attachment and aversion, sometimes they're called. So if I can have a little bit of effort, a little bit of alertness, and I can be free of attachment and fear, what's the problem? I can't, I can't have a problem in that, in that state of mind, not really. I have to create one. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm pretty good at that. I think I can find a way. <laughs> well, I think we're all pretty good at that, yeah. You know, when you were talking about negativity bias in the news, that reminded me of an interaction I had with you. It was the early stages of the pandemic. 
it was like uh, I think March 2019. Things were starting to get pretty ugly. My son was already uh, school was closed, and he was uh, doing virtual schooling from home. My wife is a school teacher; she was home. Uh, I was in private practice, kind of working things out. So we were all kind of hanging around the house, figuring out where this was all going. And there was a lot of fear mongering going on on TV, and lots and lots of end of the world type talk. I saw a notice from you on Facebook and it was a virtual mindfulness group that you were doing. But in the little ad, you said, well, they can't cancel spring, right? And I thought that that was brilliant. I'm like, yeah, they can't cancel spring. Like it's still April, uh, regardless of whether this is a disaster or not. I just thought that was very clever thing to say and uh i i jumped in and, and joined you for that and it was a, a nice reprieve from whatever else was going on well that's cool especially because we're just a day or two away from the summer solstice and summer has not been canceled yet this year and so it looks like we're on track there uh but yeah i want to come back to something that you said you said um the key word, attention, is really a key word because we talked about mindfulness being the supervision of attention. And you mentioned another key word, which is awareness, you know, bringing awareness to our thoughts. And so uh, mindfulness can be thought of as the union of attention and awareness. So the body has an awareness, right? The body is pumping blood, the, the heart is beating, the lungs are, are pumping, all kinds of things are happening at the cellular level, right? So the body is aware. It's got its own awareness. The mind has the ability to, you know, move the attention around the body. I can move my attention down to my toes. I can wiggle my fingers. I can, you know, hunch my shoulders, whatever I want to do with my attention. But it's the, it's the union of those two things, the, the intentional union of the attention and awareness. Because there are things that, you know, are, are present in my own experience, in my body, and in the room, in our conversation that I'm selecting through attention. But when I can, you know, let go a little bit of the selection, I can join the attention and the awareness and just be more present with, without doing a whole lot more, right? But there's that little effort, there's that alertness, there's the letting go of the fear, letting go of the attachment. So there is, you know, there's an inner working happening, but that's another helpful way for me to describe and to understand myself how the energy of mindfulness is different than the thinking mind. You know, we're we're often in the thinking mind mode. And I I do want to make sure that I share a clinical definition of mindfulness just to kind of unpack it a little bit more. But um, I wanted to highlight those two words, attention and awareness, and bringing those together generating that energy of mindfulness i uh i'm a big fan of eckhart tolle and this was another series of readings the uh, power of now and then practicing the power of now that kind of brought me to this idea that it's a very healthy thing when you can find a way to consciously separate yourself from your own mind. It's an, it's an important part of being healthy emotionally. 
if you believe that all of your thoughts are real as you have them, then your thoughts become your subjective reality. And when you think about the amount of thoughts that we have and our own negativity biases, it becomes a recipe for the rest of the body and the rest of like consciousness to follow, which essentially is just a recipe for a lot of suffering and unhappiness. So the idea that at any moment you can kind of separate yourself from that subjective reality of your own thoughts. And Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about the watcher, the idea that you can develop the ability to supervise your own thoughts, to ask questions, to become curious, not judgmental, not, oh, I can't believe you're thinking about that again. What an idiot. More of a curiosity and investigation. I wonder why you're thinking about that again. I wonder why I'm bringing that up or just even noticing that it looks like I'm starting to go down that road of suspicion of the motivations of other people. I wonder why I'm spending more time on that now. That's interesting. And the idea to be curious about one's thoughts I think leads to uh, other opportunities in terms of what else I could be thinking about or what else I can be experiencing. And so I think these things are uh, really important because if we never consider them as options, we just go with whatever the mind delivers us, whatever the thoughts are. Yeah, that's right, Eric. And, And in my experience... We have uh, four spheres of awareness. I think we've talked about these before. So we have the body, and that has its own uh, kind of awareness, right? It's its own sphere of awareness. If I step on your toe, you'll have a sensation. And then we have a lesser, uh, a, a less obvious sphere of awareness, which I call the spirit, and it's where emotions live. So if I jump on your foot, not only will you have a sensation, but you're going to have a feeling about that as well maybe a little anger. And then we have the mind, which is it's another sphere of awareness, and that's where the thoughts live. So we have these... Can I say something about that? Yeah, please. I think if you jumped on my foot, I would actually be really confused first, (laughs) and then maybe angry after. Yeah. But I would definitely have some feelings about it. Exactly, right. So just to... I'm sorry, I was just contemplating, like, how would I feel if you just got up (laughs) off the couch and jumped on my foot right now? Yeah, just to distinguish the level of experience and those different spheres of awareness. Sensations live in the body, emotions live in the spirit, and thoughts live in the mind. Now, most of us go through daily life just kind of pinging and you know ponging between those three spheres. What mindfulness does and what contemplative uh, exercise does is it brings us to the fourth sphere of awareness, which is awareness itself, which is beyond the mind beyond thoughts, beyond concepts. So there's already just gaining freedom from the sensations, whether it's chronic pain or hunger or, you know, needing to go to the bathroom or getting away from that emotion, that emotional reactivity that's come up for whatever reason, or getting away from that stream of negativity bias. I can touch this fourth sphere of awareness, generating the energy of mindfulness and concentration, meditation, and I have freedom right then and there. So, yeah, the 
the ability to manage our attention brings so many uh, benefits to the rest of our experience, those emotions that are in the spirit, those sensations in, their bo- in, in our bodies. And I want to come back to the depression and anxiety uh, in my own experience, and, and you can clarify this as a, as a uh, therapist and counselor. My understanding is that uh, depression and anxiety are both attentional disorders. Depression is essentially too much attention on the past and what, you know, what's wrong with that. And uh, anxiety is too much attention on the future and what could go wrong there. And so being able to supervise our attention really is a major uh, gain in, in, an, in an attentional disorder like depression or anxiety. I think sometimes you're even starting on a more basic plane than that when you're actually dealing with those things because we are not necessarily taught in our culture to have an exceptionally high value on emotional acuity or um, emotional IQ. So most people might have a really good vocabulary when they're talking about uh, their job or money or uh, current events or uh, things on social media or sports or whatever it is that interests them, wherever politics, whatever they are paying attention to. But we tend to be less focused on being able to identify our own emotions, happy, sad, mad, scared. We don't necessarily know what the body sensations are that kind of accompany these things. So being depressed or being preoccupied with the past, right, and having that result in suffering that is, we'll call depression, ruminating over regrets and things like this. You can either start at the emotion or you could start at the thought. But either way, awareness is the key, right? Awareness that I'm suffering or greater awareness that my suffering may be a product of what I'm allowing my attention to be drawn to. You know, and I think all of those are really important. I think it's all of it, right, that brings us toward seeking solutions, seeking healing. And where you get it from could be a lot of different places. But being aware of our own condition is really important. And then being aware of the condition of like the mind that creates that subjective reality. And the mind really is fundamental in in wellness and in suffering, in, in my experience. And I'd like to hear more about yours with that as well. I am a, I could tell you even subjectively that I am prone to rumination. And it really is sort of torturous. And it could be about past and it could be about future. So ruminating or worrying about the future or ruminating uh, over the past and some kind of regret, which ultimately results in this kind of series of repeated 
thoughts or repeated thoughts around a particular idea that sort of drives me to a fear of making uh, an emotion, fear that, I'd say fear in the sense that we're making an emotional prediction that something bad is going to happen. And it never, ever happens. Or it never happens the way I imagine it's going to happen. But I always seem very sure that it will because I keep repeating it over and over again. And like Beetlejuice, if you say it enough times, it's going to show up, but it doesn't. Or that rumination over the past as if I could go back there and change it in some way if I keep repeating it. So it's a strange thing, but I think the mind has its own way of being kind of captured. And it's only when, personally, I can snap out of it that something else becomes available to me, some sort of solution. And I think mindfulness is a path for a lot of people or just the idea that my thoughts are not necessarily reality. Yeah, so I'd like to talk about two points that are relevant to to this notion about yeah the the thoughts and their value and uh, and how to manage them so one one uh, thought I wanted to share is uh, the the uh, a clinical definition of mindfulness which I appreciate which is from uh, a uh, researcher down at the University of Miami Amishi Ja and, and she says that mindfulness is a mental mode characterized by attention to the present moment, free from emotional reactivity or conceptual elaboration. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's unpacking, you know, the supervision of attention, right? How do we become free from emotional reactivity even in daily interactions with our family or coworkers, because we're, you know, in, in we are in these habit energies where, oh, I know what she's going to say, or I know what he's thinking, uh, but I don't always know what she's going to say, or I don't always know what he's thinking, but I, I, I believe I do, and and I may be right sometimes, but I'm I'm often wrong. So uh, conceptual elaboration is adding thoughts to the present reality that you know, are not really useful or necessarily true. It's fabricating, you know, it's daydreaming. It's taking a thought, a seed of a thought, and just elaborating on it, ruminating on it, fixating on it, rather than being present in in the moment. Because the thought is maybe taking me to the future, to the past, uh, but it's taking me away from my experience of the of the present reality, the same way that emotional reactivity will take me away. So that's one thing, on one hand, that clinical definition. The other thing I want to say about mindfulness. In the, in the mindfulness world, we talk about three roots. There are three roots that a person can have, and, and if we're missing any one of them, we might be a little bit vulnerable to illness of some sort. So the three roots are, one is having a teacher. Now that teacher can be our inner teacher. We all have access to an inner teacher that is the voice of wisdom, uh, is the voice of reason, and that, that's accessible in us, but also outside of us, can be reflected in a teacher to help us uh, discover the path and the journey of, of a mindful way of life. So, so that's one route is having a teacher. The second route is teachings. So having specific exercises, specific practices, routines, uh, disciplines 
for example, one very simple teaching I share with high school students is take eight. We take mind, we take eight mindful breaths using our our fingers to count. You know, just tracking our thumbs across four fingers on each hand, experiencing the in breath, appreciating the out breath. So that's just a simple teaching, and there you know are many more that we could use uh, teachings around forgiveness, teachings around strong emotions. So that's the second route. And the third route is having a group, having a group that shares in the teacher and the teachings and and some kind of community. So I, I, I say that because there is this uh, myth of the lone meditator, you know, the person out on the beach or on the mountaintop, and, you know, they've, they've done it, so to speak. Uh, but to my mind is, is a misrepresentation, and that's why I call it a myth, of the way that mindfulness works. Because in history, you know, the last couple thousand years, mindfulness has been learned and taught in community. Yeah, sometimes we have our individual experience, our, you know, our wilderness experience, whether that's literal or figurative wilderness, that wakes us up to the need for this other mental mode, this other way that the mind works, uh, but then that usually leads to community. I think there's a fundamental issue in humanity that much suffering derives of uh, loneliness and being alone or feeling isolated. So ultimately, when you conceptualize mindfulness as a pathway of connecting with a teacher and learning the teachings and then participating with a group, I think that could be said of, of many things. But this practice seems more deliberate in the ease of suffering, right? That is the tradition that it comes from and sort of like the purpose of all of it. Because the mind in isolation is especially vulnerable to that rumination, that fixation. And so without that support of somebody else who is intentional about mindfulness and overcoming the, the negativity bias in us and around us, without that support, yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to slip into the depression, the isolation, the loneliness. I think we're very unique species-wise in that kind of problem. I think other animals in the kingdom don't have these thoughts of being self-aware or self-possessed or so much focus on one's individual identity. I'm fond of saying that I've never been to the dog park and seen a dog off crying in the corner, wondering, is this all there is? Like, Maybe I could have made it to Westminster or something like that, and instead I'm just I'm just here. They don't live in regret. They don't even they're not even troubled by what happened a moment ago. They just keep on going. It's a it's another stick, it's another blade of grass, it's another dog, it's another thing to sniff. They're just they just keep on going. Whatever's whatever's in front of them is what it's about. And it's funny, um Eckhart Tolle in power of now even says neurotic behavior is very much a human problem and the only neuroticism you'll see in other species of animals 
are within those that have spent time around people. And so you think about someone's neurotic dog that requires a thunder jacket every time it rains. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. Like he, he somehow or other absorbed those people's like nervousness around the weather or whatever. When you think about that, all of these animals are derived from wolves, you know, that exist in the hardiest climates on the planet. So you have, you know, these wolves that survive like the frozen tundra of Siberia. And then my dog, the descendant animal that was bred to be with humans now requires a, uh, a thunder jacket when it rains. It's kind of a funny thing. Yeah, you know, there's an image that that we use a lot in our mindfulness training sessions, and it has uh, it's a it's a an illustration of somebody walking a dog, and it has the thought bubble. It has the thought bubble for the human, and it has a thought bubble for the dog. And so, in the thought bubble for the human walking the dog, there uh, there's just all kinds of things. There's you know a, a bill, there's a car, there's a building. And of course, they're just walking on a street with trees and uh, sunshine and clouds. But that's not what is in the thought bubble of the person. You know, they're just innumerable things in there. Um, those, you know, thousands of thoughts that are piling up. And the thought bubble for the dog is the trees and the sun and the clouds. The dog is present. The human is not. And so, yeah, to your point, uh, the difference between our experience, the dog, yeah, is just enjoying the present moment, which is available uh, only in the present and, uh, and can be a choice if we, if we decide to make it a choice, independent of the circumstances, to enjoy the present. I'm always very satisfied when I could come off of a negative thought at this very moment, there is an unjust charge on my AT&T bill. We were supposed to return a damaged receiver, mm. and I don't think we got it in time. And the thing is like $135, so it's not a small charge. Yeah, It's just sitting there on the bill. And my wife already called about it last week, and they didn't adjust it. And now it's it, it hooked me. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. on my mind. And I meant to deal with it today at work and there wasn't really time. But the most important thing about that was that it hooked me this morning. It was on my mind and I was starting to escalate over it. Like I was starting to get annoyed. (laughs) And there was a moment where I made the conscious decision. I want to, I don't want to be thinking about this right now. I just want to be thinking about other things. And I sort of need this to not be that important just because it's bothering me and I don't want to deal with it. And it wasn't avoidant. I will Mm -hmm. get to it. It's just, it's not emergent. And I literally just chose to think about other things and do other things and, and to be happy. And again, I'm not avoiding it. It'll get dealt with when it needs to. I just didn't want it to hook me because I realized that I was probably about a good six minutes into escalating over the ruminating thoughts Mm -hmm. about how I was being inconvenienced and annoyed. And it's very gratifying when I can make the decision to focus my attention elsewhere and not be bothered by it. 
Congratulations. Yeah. It's a, a moment of freedom. And, that, and that's a, you know, it's a common kind of example. Uh, but that that's part of our of our experience nowadays, right? Dealing with these uh, large corporations and the, you know, having a hard time getting in touch with a person and having these charges and yeah, how much life energy do we want to expend on on those things? Uh, and I like the uh, the term that you used, hook, because uh, that's a term that uh, one of my teachers, Thich Nhat Han, uh, for my money, you know, the greatest uh, mindfulness teacher of the last fifty years. He talked a lot about that. Uh, he used that term hook, you know, whether our minds get hooked on whether it's, you know, the, the shiny new thing that we see somewhere that we think that we need or, you know, some kind of prestige or w- whatever it might be. The mind has a uh, predisposition in, in, in my experience and in our culture to get hooked, to be hooked on something. And, and it can be a wonderful quality when it's hooked on the right thing in the right way. Uh, but it can be a, a, a very painful quality when it's hooked on the wrong thing in the wrong way. So, yeah, uh, it's good recognition, good awareness for you to, to, to say that you were hooked there for a minute on, on that uh, unjust charge. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm already going to lose time dealing with this on the phone. I don't need to lose any more time rehearsing for it, you know. But, the, you know, look, the cable companies, the phone companies, that, that's a great opportunity to practice mindfulness because eventually you are going to have to talk to a person on the other end of the phone. I hope so. I don't think they got the AI to that level yet. Well, they're trying, but they're, they're not there yet. So you're going to talk to a person. And that's a chance to generate the energy of mindfulness with that other person and see if you can enjoy working through that unjust charge even if it doesn't work out in your favor, coming back to the freedom from attachment or fear, you've, you've got an aspiration to have that unjust charge removed. That might not be met. So are you going to be okay if, if that's the case? I don't think there's any part of that experience I'm going to enjoy, even if I set the intention to. And I'm going to be unhappy if they don't <laughs> take this charge off the bill. But I consider myself successful in that it's not dominating my thoughts for 45 minutes at a time. Right, yeah. That, for me, is a big win. And yeah, you use that example, but there are other, there are other more powerful examples that can dominate our thoughts. You know, upon waking, something can catch us and hook us, and I can be just, you know, on a line like a fish, just following that thought. How can I gain some power over that thought? How can I gain some freedom? And I wanted to mention the, the sort of the what's happening when we generate the energy of mindfulness and contemplation. We're renewing the mind. And that's not something that we're trained to do, at least not in, in, in most schools or most settings. But renewing the mind is, it's almost like, uh, you know, we're here in South Florida, so we can easily picture the ocean and the waves rolling in. And if we draw some land, some if we draw some lines in the sand, those are etched into the sand. When the water rolls in, it's going to start erasing those lines. And that's how the mind is. I've got some things etched in my mind. And if I don't renew it, those etches are just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm going to be stuck in those ruts, those mental thinking ruts. When I generate that energy of mindfulness, whether it's 
<clears throat> for five minutes or 10 minutes, however long it is each day, I'm renewing the mind. I'm, I'm kind of erasing those ruts, which allows the mind to fully express itself and find solutions to those, those problems or challenges that are creating the ruts to begin with, if that makes sense. You know, in the, in the world of um, neurocognition, that you talk about neural pathways and how these pathways can be primed by these consistent negative thoughts and negative schemas that create and kind of cut a pathway to the reactive emotion that goes with the thought. And you can kind of get stuck in that pattern the more often you do it. It's sort of like a muscle memory. It just intuitively knows to go there so the thought quickly primes the reaction and it sounds like what you're describing is the formation of new neural pathways for a different sort of response to things it's two things really it's freedom from the existing pathways which have their limitations and then it's also creation of of new neural pathways that can bring us beyond our previous experience. And I'll, I'll mention Thich Nhat Hanh again, because he, he found a lot of uh, clever ways to describe complex things in simple language. And so he talked about habit energies. I was blessed to be on retreat with him, a five-day retreat in 2009, a mindfulness retreat in upstate New York. And that was an eye-opening experience because I saw that mindfulness could be a way of life 24-7 with a teacher, with teachings, with that group. That shifted my my perspective about mindfulness from, you know, just a tool to a lifestyle, to a way of life. But you've mentioned Eckhart Tolle a couple of times. I want to uh, talk about him for a minute too. I, I, I've read one or two of his books. I like his writing. And I saw somebody sent me, uh, maybe this is about a year or so ago now, a little more, but somebody sent me a video of Eckhart Tolle talking with a mindfulness teacher, a guy named Jack, uh, what's his name? Uh, it'll come to me. But the, ex- the exchange between them was about mindfulness versus presence, because Eckhart Tolle doesn't use the word mindfulness in his writing. No. And it's intentional. He chose to use the word presence, uh, to distinguish himself or, I guess, to his personal preference for, you know, the vocabulary about uh, awareness was presence. And, and that's a good choice. But he was talking to a, a well-known, respected uh, mindfulness teacher, and they both essentially agreed that presence, according to Eckhart Tolle, and mindfulness, according to the mindfulness teacher, they're essentially the same thing. They're just uh, you preferring a slightly different vocabulary. Yeah, I think even in the regular vernacular, if I was to say I experienced Pablo as being very present or I experienced Pablo as being very mindful, I think they're both compliments <laughs> and uh, they both speak to some level of attentiveness and awareness. And Yeah, agreed. I, I think they are somewhat interchangeable. But I think the, the lack of consistency among teachers and among traditions leads to confusion on occasion. People, you know. Perhaps. Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting. I uh, I knew I very much wanted to talk to you and have you come on and, and interview you because I think you're so insightful, honestly, and very interesting in your whole approach to this. Like even your way of uh, broaching the subject is is kind of unique. And one of the things that I'm really aware of about you now is that as we've been talking, it seemed as though there was no sort of pretense about plugging anything. Like you didn't talk about yourself. You didn't, it was none of that. It was that consistent commitment to teaching. And I just, I'm just noticing that now, like he's always doing it you know, whenever possible, that that mission of that, the mission of instruction, it just seems very natural, like you're kind of living in that. Yeah, well, I, I feel uh, grateful for that observation and for the opportunity to live as a mindfulness teacher. It's sort of a a new role, I say with the air quotes, because it's it's not new at all. It's been around for a long time. But that particular terminology is somewhat new. And in my experience, yeah, the, the best teachers are not selling anything, especially not themselves. They are uh, transmitting. In our case, we're really trying to transmit wisdom. You know, the, in the mindfulness world, we say that concentration uh, brings wisdom, and without concentration, there is no wisdom. And so in an in, in information age, and in, in the digital age, you know, wisdom is not so much uh, appreciated, at least in my experience. Uh, so, so I think for me personally, it is important to embody the, the teacher role uh, in in uh, in any way that I can. Is there anything that you'd like to say as far as what you're doing at the way mindfulness education or how people could get in touch with you? I know that there are a number of psychotherapists that you have trained in mindfulness and that they have incorporated your teachings into their psychotherapy, and that that's something that you offer to people. It is, yeah. And so, yes, you mentioned The Way Mindfulness Education. We do have a website there at theway.education. And uh, we offer, usually a couple of times a year, we offer mindfulness facilitator training. Uh, we've started offering through our partner, Soil and Soul is a nonprofit agency that is offering an eight-week circle leader training. So this is for people who want to find a group and might want to play a role in leading that group or forming that group. And we are in the middle of our second uh, eight-week circle leader training just now, and we haven't set the dates for the next ones. But those are happening a little more frequently than the mindfulness facilitator training and I'll also say that I am working with uh, 
some local schools. We have mindfulness clubs at a few local schools. So for uh, folks who have teenagers, um, we're right now in the midst of a mindfulness club summer camp training high school students to start or join a club at their school. So there's some of that information at the Way um, Mindfulness Education website and some information at soilandsoul.org. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me, Pablo. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been really great. It's always really enlightening just hanging out with you and having you share your uh, thoughts and wisdom with me. I always come away from meeting with you feeling that way. Well, I, I appreciate the energy you bring to this podcast and to your meetings and to your work. I I feel energized by it, and uh, I really am grateful for your enthusiasm and uh, diligence in really trying to get at the root of suffering and to help uh, ourselves and others to overcome it. Ladies and gentlemen, Pablo Del Rio, thank you again for joining me.